This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and it's that time again, our third quarter 2022 quarterly recap. If you listen to our second quarter episode, that was a recap of Carnage, a what the hell just happened episode. For this go around, Eric helps assess the damage and the signs of light in the market. The tide came up. We know who was swimming naked, but who's an emerging winner in Eric's mind? And spoiler alert, it's not just SBF. We cover early takeaways from the Ethereum merge, Eric's observation on the convergence between traditional finance and crypto, and why Eric is so interested in the Bitcoin mining market in the fourth quarter. Please enjoy this quarterly recap. All right, Eric, round three. Here we go. Third quarter, 2022. Told you it was going to be more fun. My favorite exercise in these is just reciting the data, the performance data. So in the third quarter, we shook it up a little bit. Bitcoin was down 2%. Ethereum gained 20%. And then the S&P and NASDAQ were both down about 5%. But let's start with general thoughts on the third quarter. What was the most memorable points or moments of the third quarter that stood out to you and might stand out in the future? To start the third quarter, I feel like it was the end of a large liquidity credit crisis. So what ended up happening that probably was ignited by the Luna Terra collapse was the Three Arrows credit crisis. When Luna first collapsed, my initial take was it's an algorithmic stablecoin, which I was struggling to understand how it worked. It was a very large size coin. But even on Web3 Breakdowns, when we interviewed Ryan Selkis, I couldn't understand how Luna worked exactly with paying out rewards. And the term Ponzi gets thrown around too much. But this notion of offering people perverse incentives, which the reason why I think it's thrown around too much is, to me, that does look a lot and smells a lot and feels a lot like customer acquisition strategies when companies are burning venture capital money to bring consumers online. I think it's like when I don't like something, it's a Ponzi. When I do like something, it's a customer acquisition strategy. But that aside, that caused a huge hole in a bunch of balance sheets. And so then the question was, was this a Lehman moment? Was there going to be a lot of fallout? Who had a lot of lunar exposure? Which makes sense. And for a probably several weeks, it looked like the Luna thing was actually rather contained, that it was on large, well-funded balance sheets. And then sometime, we don't know official dates, I'm sure as more legal filings come out with Three Arrows, we'll get better intel. But the prime brokers who were mixed at this point, again, there's some differences in trade fine crypto. You had retail and institutional money blended. People had lent money to Three Arrows, this large hedge fund that was considered to be a strong trader with a large balance sheet and growing, 
were asking for margin requirements and those weren't being met. And that's the most terrifying thing a prime broker can know because especially coming from a large firm. So at some point, we started to see large sells in the crypto market. And this was also in the midst of the Fed tightening. So people are like, oh, see, crypto is horrible and it doesn't stay up. And I think what people didn't realize was everyone was yelling macro, 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 unless you were involved in crypto a little bit more deeply to understand. My analogy is if Bill Huang was running long-term capital management and Lehman Brothers was his prime broker and maybe Bernie Madoff was his co-PM, that's what was happening. This was like every financial crisis I've read or been closer to happening all at once. So when people ask me, was this a Lehman moment with Luna? I said, people own Luna. They don't own Luna. Some people got wiped out. It moved and you reconciled. But the fact was that just like traditional finance, when people want credit, it's off balance sheet. It's off chain. So the leverage being given to Three Arrows was not on chain. It was under collateralized from large brokers in a form of trust. And when that trust broke down, that blew a hole in the entire leverage component of crypto and leverage is probably the most important metric you could need to know in crypto of like what drives it when people are levering up or down. So that leverage hole just detonated everybody around it. And so as the market was selling off, I think the most memorable thing was when ETH hit $900. To me, I was like, I'm not sure how much much bank can get. And I didn't know what it was, but it felt like, holy shit, the thing that I know or have a better sense that the market doesn't know is this isn't a macro thing. Yeah, it's down because assets are down, but you don't know the meteor hole that these two, Zuzu and Kyle, just blew in this entire industry. And if you ask the people that trade large accounts and what margin calls were looking like, this was a massive credit contraction all at once. So it just felt like at some point, this has to get to a better normal state. And so that was the beginning of the quarter of like coming out of the disaster that was the three hours collapse. One thing on that, how did you get comfortable? Because I think you outlined it quite well with the formula of Bill Huang, Lehman, long-term capital. But then there's also no Fed to bail out the industry as well, which is a pretty big piece of the puzzle. How did you get comfortable or were you ever comfortable that there was a floor? You talk about wipeouts and when it's systemic, theoretically, you don't know where the floor is, especially when there's no guardian angel there. It's such an interesting question because I think it gets to one of the roots of my early intoxication with managing money through the financial crisis, watching 08 happen, watching the Fed have to step in. I think people think like, oh, it was all well and good. I think I tweeted about this recently, like when the House, I think it was the House, voted down the first recovery bill to give the Fed the power to do what it was going to do. I took money out of bank accounts. I'm like, if you were at a money market fund or an asset manager or a liquidity provider, if you knew how close to the brink, modern banking just not working the next day, that was terrifying. And so I felt like, wow, this is what the Fed really has to do is to step in when you have these terrifying moments. But then the after effect is when you intervene, no matter what, anytime there's intervention, there's winners and losers. And that's the part that becomes really challenging. Just going back to 08 for a second, and I'll hopefully tie it to what you just asked about the intervention in crypto, is that like in 08, if you had leveraged yourself up to your eyeballs and bought multiple homes and taken out loans, made money on flipping houses, like people were doing extraordinarily risky speculative things, and the intervention saved them. It wasn't the goal of the intervention, but it saves them. 
And then the impact on the longer term is, oh, we have to do this, but it really hurt the savers. So the people that were trying to save money and they weren't leveraging themselves up, they were the opposite of speculators. They were very prudent. They got hurt the most. And so when crypto was first introduced to me, the ethos, it wasn't anarchist against the government. I was like, I'm proud that the US dollar is the world currency reserve. I like that for global stability and what it means. However, I understood why people were so upset and disheartened by it. Why does this bank get to decide that this person survives and that person doesn't? This bank lives like, should that power be somewhere? And so that part of crypto struck me of like, I feel you. What are we going to do? Like, There is no option. So then as crypto grew and it started to get adopted more, I was like, my God, like this is working, which we've kind of reviewed in the past. So back to the point about this current crash, I think people... They get upset about like the liquidations, the people getting wrecked. I'm not a pure libertarian who thinks there shouldn't be any regulation. I think there is good regulation. I really like Hester Peirce's view of being a lifeguard, not a parent. Yes, I don't like frauds and I don't like scams and I don't like people manipulating other people, but I also like accountability and ownership. And that not having intervention to me is really a special feature that I wish the federal central banks intervened only when there was no way crisis. I'm sure we'll get into it, but like what we just saw with the Bank of England, that is not international crisis. This is not the end of the world. This is not the end of modern banking. This is you don't like which way it went, so we're going to like intervene. And so I always felt like when quantitative easing came on the scene to intervene, I told people that's like cocaine. And once people try it, they're not going to stop using it. And so it's a dangerous power to be exposed to. So back to the crypto side, I think part of the ethos for being part of it is you understand there is no bailout and that people own these assets. There is no floor. What holds up any asset at any point in time is the people's willingness to be part of the system. And I didn't know people might look at charts and say, it could go here, it could go here. And so it wasn't like calling an absolute bottom. It was just knowing relative to how the outside world was perceiving the downside and the headlines that the average market participant, I don't know if they had the full picture of, based on everything I've been told, I think ETH should be at like $300. It's so devastating what had happened. To me, that was really the call of like, wow, where the bottoming comes from is when you have a credit contraction, just like when you have a levering up. When people are levering up, they're pushing the price up because they're speculating on higher prices. They want to keep buying and they're getting happy. The credit contraction will always happen faster because people blow out to stay liquid and solvent. So if you were BlockFi, Celsius, Voyager, all these brokers that were in the middle, Genesis, they had to sell stuff. And so eventually, there is a point, they've sold what they could, anything that wasn't tied down, and the holes are the holes. And that's where the write downs come from. So it just felt like that was an interesting point for the market. So talk about like how crypto, it's been 90 days since we last did this. It's been nine goddamn years in like traditional finance. And then you end the quarter with the ETH merge. So ending of the bottom of ETH and then coming out the merge. So my God, I don't know if I can do every quarter with this much information. From being more on the outside, it actually felt like a quieter quarter to me. But as I started to recap all of the events that did happen, I think it was just some of it was just less public. But I think you brought up a few interesting points there, one of which is the level playing field, which I think is particularly interesting. And for anyone who's a true investor, I think that has to be exciting. You have a lot of different situations, quantitative easing related where there are haves and have nots. It's the student loan situation and that relief, even with COVID-19 relief, I think there's a lot of frustration over where the dollars have gone versus a market where 
theoretically is fully independent of that intervention, at least for the time being. But I think you hit on another point, which is the famous investing adage, when the tide comes up, you see who's swimming naked. At the same time, you see who's got a bathing suit on, who's got proper risk protocols, who's succeeding. And for me, it seems clear that SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, has done well, navigated this well, has gone on the offensive. Are there other winners, at least at this moment in time, that have come out looking particularly strong or when you adjust for all of the downside that's been experienced elsewhere, certain players in the market that you think really stand out and are making the name for themselves even stronger at this moment? SBF is completely the person who's kind of like one, got center stage now is kind of the king of crypto and has used it to acquire and consolidate a very healthy lead that they were already building. I think the other person that's probably not as mentioned as much, I find impressive just as an outside observer would be Barry Silbert at DCG, Digital Currency Group. You kind of always hear about them, but I don't know if people totally understand how much power and an empire he was been able to build over all these years. So from moving to second market, which I remember was like trading illiquid private company equity to then moving into Bitcoin, to trading, to exchanges, to media, to market making desks, to mining, like he's expanded across crypto. And so one of his key assets, Genesis, was no doubt because they were so big and central, it's probably one of the largest prime brokers, they probably had exposure to some of the blowout and the credit contraction. But because he built such a diverse empire, I don't think anyone ever blinked and was worried about that. Whereas if all you did was make markets and lend crypto out in that way, you were a lot more concerned for like, well, how much three hour did you have? And can your business keep running? And what does that mean? Does it cause a essentially a run on the bank that people aren't sure how much exposure you have? And so I think that the diversity with which he's built that firm definitely gave him a lot of staying power and a concerning situation. So I would say he gets kind of silver medal for dealing with the crisis. And then I think people have been a bit surprised, specifically Coinbase, that there wasn't more consolidation of actions. And it might be that just in general, we're in this odd space where even though there might be distressed assets for sale, the entire market is down. And so the m and cycle that you'd expect to see coming out of a credit crisis just isn't as natural or it's not as quick. But it definitely feels like SPF's the buyer of last resort and able to take on whatever assets he wants that he thinks will make the FTX business better. Yeah, there's three contrasting styles between FTX, Barry, and Coinbase, where you have Coinbase, the public company, which I think probably causes some challenges when it relates to any type of M&A when you're a public company and have to publish those cash flow numbers versus... Sam, who I think is very out there in the public and very aggressive. And then Barry, who's incredibly in the shadows in many ways. I think we've tried to get him on and we've had some of his employees on. But just that alone, I think is pretty interesting to see. And especially as it relates to what you mentioned in terms of aggressive action. But I wanted to segue and not wait too long before we get to the merge. One, I think it's helpful just to give a quick recap of what happened with the Ethereum merge. And then two... What's the immediate takeaway? It's only been a couple of weeks now, but was it successful in terms of what it was trying to accomplish? How can we measure what happened from the merge and really what's next? Because that was such a big catalyst or a big moment for such a long period of time. Where do we stand now on that? Just to give people some background, when Ethereum was first created and people started thinking about it, there were early papers by Vitalik saying that someday their goal was to move it to proof of stake from proof of work. 
And so in proof of work, you're creating a chain that uses energy as its kind of source. And we've done a bunch of podcasts to go into this in, in better depth. So I don't want to butcher it, but essentially energy is the source which secures the chain. The more nodes you run, the more secure it is, and there's rewards involved. So you want to bring more power to a chain. And so the idea was, if you think about being a Bitcoin miner and proof of work, you have to get specific dedicated hardware, then you have to get electricity sources to run it. And you're worried that you're running against some foreign miner that has free energy because they're paying off local officials. Bitcoin mining, I think, will be a big topic of the next quarter, which we can get into, but that was a big business. And so the thought was, if you're going to set up a miner, you have this capital requirement and this ongoing operating cost of electricity. In proof of stake, what if you just used money? Is just saying, like, here's a bunch of my own money. I'm willing to risk it to secure the chain. So instead of having to actually go buy specialized hardware to go buy actual electricity, your money is a form of risk. Now, there's lots of very strong views on this that that's not true power and that money can be corrupted and someone could buy the chain. But there is some interesting parallels there. When we learned about Bitcoin mining and you start to learn about pools, like when we did the Foundry episode, and they said, okay, like, yeah, not all these miners are individual players people come together and and they pool their resources. So that's a high level summary of kind of proof of work with proof of stake. But it had always been desired by Ethereum and the community wanted it. And for years, it's been kind of discussed of like how far away it was. So my like real dive hard into crypto, I probably was thinking about it in 17, but really didn't start putting any money to work until 19. I had heard about the merge, but there's been people that have been waiting around since the early days of Ethereum for this. And there's people been critiquing and ridiculing them that it will never happen. It's like Avatar 2. <laughs> I don't want to be disingenuous. The developers that stuck along, I always admire the builders and the founders who are like, I really want to see this come to fruition, even though everyone's telling you it's not going to happen. It's constantly delayed. And even over the past three years, there's been like, oh, it's going to happen. Oh, nope, it got delayed. Oh, it's going to happen. When you think about it, running software live, open source software on an open computer like this, It's kind of crazy to think of such a huge radical change, even if you're not technically sophisticated. Think about when your company tries to change a piece of software to like update your password and everything breaks. They have full control over everything. Nothing touches the outside world. Here's something that's just spinning 24-7. And so I think that you didn't have to have a cryptography background or computer science degree to be like, this is a big change, which is why it took so long. And to be fair, the way this happened, I don't know if everyone fully appreciates because some people have talked about you're changing a car's engine while it's moving. It's one of the Ethereum core developers was talking about you really have two airplanes moving really fast together. The beacon chain had been running and it had been going and so it had been tested. So it was out there happening. And the question was, when were we going to switch from one to the other? So we're going to jump over. And so they had a moment that they had selected based on um, difficulty of the blocks. And when it happened, it essentially, from everything I read from a technical side was seamless. I'll get into the market stuff because the market started to act really interesting. But technically, I think it was a huge achievement. I think it's probably underappreciated because it's been going on so long and the whole world doesn't know what just happened. But I'm sure that assuming Ethereum is a successful chain that exists into the future, this will be looked upon as like a special moment and a technical achievement that was accomplished. So I think it was a very impressive thing. And so technically, it went really well. I don't know if you could actually have it go any better because when something like this happens by something, I mean, a large market event's coming and everyone's position. Think like Y2K where everyone's like, oh my God. Sell the news. <laughs> yeah. So 
I think there was like, holy crap, this thing's going to go up 20%, down 20%. The first thing that I was surprised at from the data, but then talking to another market participant, they all told me I, I had it off. The short interest going into the merge was really high of people betting that Ethereum was going to crash right after the merge. And there's good reasons. What if this goes wrong? What if a bunch of stuff gets raised? What happens if this is a failure and you can't get the moon launch or whatever? But coming into it and coming out of it, it ended up being a nothing burger. So like to me, from a market standpoint, even though nobody was managing it, I can't imagine something more successful. It happened, it came and went, and the world didn't end. Yeah, no glitches. And my instinct was that you might see a natural sell-off. So maybe that explains the short interest going in. Is there a way to measure it going forward? Is it just a matter of it didn't break? So that's a success. And now you get into just the dynamics of the compute power. Is there anything else there that you think will determine its success after the fact? You had Gensler come out and talk about the merge. He does seem to be trying to grab every headline. And most recently with the Kim Kardashian thing, I think Fox News just reported, it really feels that he really is politically trying to position himself to be treasury secretary and that big cases, public opinion matters. It's just odd for an SEC commissioner to make a video about a celebrity. I thought it was fake. I've never seen it. Exactly. I thought it was fake too. When I saw it, I thought it was a meme. I'm like, I've never seen a commissioner do something like that. I can understand from an educational standpoint that you take down someone like Kim Kardashian because you think everyone will like listen and you'll have a broader reach. But I thought that was a bit odd behavior unless you believe the political thing. But one thing that he had commented on when the merge happened was like, oh, we might have just created a security, which is such an interesting like line of reasoning to me because when I first started looking at Bitcoin proof of work, I was like, isn't a miner just playing an unregulated lottery? Because it's just random. And then they get money for it. The definition of security, of gambling, of what you are is interesting to me. And so with Ethereum, let's just put the hold on the regulation side for a second. And it's a big thing to put on hold. I just want to explain why I get so excited about proof of stake at scale for retail involvement. So a couple of things. And this might surprise people, although I guess we don't because we know it. If you stake on Ethereum proof of stake network, you need 32 ETH, which right now is probably, I don't know, like $50,000, not a small amount of money. You need to run software. It's not specialized hardware, but you need to run some code. And if you put that money in, you get paid an interest rate on that yield for staking. That's your reward. Sorry, I should say reward. It's not an interest rate. The downside is if you want that 32 ETH back, there's no way to get it out. You can never redeem your money. Did you know that? I actually did not know that. That's a big deal that you have billions of dollars staked, but they can't take their money out. Ever. Right now. Right now, ever. Now, people are saying that in about a year from now, you should be able to, but the money's locked up indefinitely until a new part of the code is rolled out. Is that on the horizon? Is that in the ETH Foundation's plans? Another thing, you're holding the money and you're not giving it back. And I think to them, they're, first of all, getting the merge right matter. There's a lot of different other pieces besides the merge that go into the long-term version of proof of stake. But for the record, you can't get your money out of proof of stake on Ethereum right now if you put it in. And then when you do, whenever they do turn that on to withdraw, it's not instantaneous. There'll be like a queue you get into. So it doesn't all come out at once. And correct me if I'm wrong, when you're staking, it's transferring out of your wallet. Yeah, it's gone. You're putting it on a validator. And now that's there. That's the whole point. You're proving your stake. And that's how you're getting the rewards. But you can't unstake. So you need that. Interesting. Changes the yield dynamics a little bit. <laughs> but stick with me. 
a lot of crypto or any type of like fast moving technology, there's a lot of squinting. And sometimes you squint and you see mirages and sometimes you squint and you see the future. And if you're like me every day, you're asking yourself, am I a crazy person or am I onto something? You can squint. But what I can see is literally the future of fixed income of internet native interest rate bearing instruments where you can have terms that you're staking for and you're earning yield on. And that is really, really interesting to me. Now, there are other networks that you can currently stake on and you get your money back in three days and 12 days. Some of them are 24 hours. Ethereum is not the first proof of stake network. There exists people that have figured this stuff out, but Ethereum is the largest proof of stake network. And so what excites me is that as retail and institutional investors, there's definitely investment products in a new... This is where I get excited about the new asset class formation, because if you had a hard asset like Ethereum and it generated some sort of what I was calling yield, but as a reward, that is a very interesting prospect. Now, Gensler might tell you it's a security. Other people are going to argue there's no way it's a security. You are providing security, investment security to the chain, and you're getting paid for that work. But I think that you have a very interesting development happening of a yield-bearing instrument for the future when the rest of the stuff is worked out. And I guess just to use the fixed income framework, it might be easiest. With a traditional bond or loan, you would give your $100 and then you get 4% a year. And then eventually, let's say five years, you get that $100 back, you get that principal back with Ethereum staking, is the idea going to be that there's going to be a maturity date or a set date, which you can then withdraw and have rewards set based on that? Trying to understand the vision for what that staking would look like, because I imagine that's ultimately going to be replicated in a lot of different ways. I think eventually it's going to price like commercial paper or weekly variable rate debt. Because you basically have a put option where you can put the debt back and get your money out with some level of notice. So the yields right now, I think are like, I don't have them up. I think people are saying there are seven to 10% range because like the yields bounce around. It's good that it's variable. If less people are securing the network, the rewards are shared over a lower denominator. And if more people use the network, there's more rewards to be paid. So it's kind of this function of usage and how many other people are doing this. That makes sense. As more people offer security, you should get paid less for it. And as more people use the network, you should get paid more for it. So you don't know what the rates are. But I assume that when you are able to finally get liquidity out in some sort of provision fashion, whether it's seven days, a month, whatever, you would price it like you had a one-month put and just you were rolling your variable rate interest. But that's a very exciting instrument, especially if you were long the asset class anyways. Do you think that going all the way back to the start, leverage is what brought the system down. And part of the challenge of leverage was that you couldn't see it. It wasn't on chain. So you're operating in the shadows. Could you ever have that type of leverage run on chain? I'd be concerned when they announced that they're unstaking because there's a lot of money that's been on there tied up. And maybe not all of it could be hedged with futures. So people are like really excited to take their money out and that could threaten the security of the network. I don't see it as the same way as the most recent crypto credit crisis because they're, to me, Leverage is just the accelerant. If you've got a good idea with leverage, it goes wonderful. <laughs> if you have a bad idea, from what I had heard, some of the trades they were doing was this. They were staking. Another one was trying to buy the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC, at a discount on the idea that maybe the SEC would open up that trade. So that was a trade before, if you remember, was trading at a premium. And these crypto native funds thought it was clever to use leverage to like extract that premium. And so basically you were 
buying Bitcoin, delivering it, getting units of GBTC, and then I think you had to wait six months to trade it. So you could like capture this premium, assuming that over that six months, the premium didn't erode. So lots of people were doing this trade because, and the reason you'd be like, well, Eric, why the hell is there a premium? That doesn't make sense. But it showed that it was obvious or easy for people to get exposure to Bitcoin. And so this was an easier way, even though it's not an ideal product by any means. As it got easier, that trend reversed and it traded at a discount. It was a steeper discount. So I think one of the trades they were doing was just leverage GBTC. So massive amounts of leverage pledging it, saying like, okay, when this gap collapses, someday this trade is going to be awesome. That is true. But if you don't know the day and you're levered, you're paying interest. And if you get a, a margin call, you don't have time to wait for that to happen. So I think it's kind of those combinations. Whereas I'd say the leverage that's concerned me in this is actually a separate derivative of this is called liquid staking. So liquid staking is where people want to stake, but they want their money back. There are companies, what they've done is they put the 32 Ethan, then they give you money, but they take a VIG. So what they're saying is like, let's just say that they're getting paid 8%. They're like, hey, I'll pay you 5%. To me, what I think about investing, I'm always thinking about risk conversion. Every time there's been a problem, it's been in taking one type of risk and doing some sort of magic to make it another risk. So taking in a liquid asset and then calling it liquid. We would do this. People would take long durations assets and then call them short duration. And so anytime you structure something and you take away the inherent risk it has. So in this case, staked ETH is inherently e-liquid, like definitionally liquid. I don't know if there's anything less liquid than you can't get your money back from it. And then someone's saying, well, I don't like that. I want liquidity. Of course you do because it's illiquid. And so they're sitting, that's a lot of risk and a lot of leverage that could go sideways on someone. And then the question is like, does it happen before? So right now, I don't know where it is today. You can see liquid ETH and like what it trades at, like as a discount, staked ETH versus regularly, then it should trade at a discount. It's not the same. We're creative creatures. So we're always going to come up with derivatives or if there's a problem with the system, we can solve that problem for you. We're just going to take a couple hundred basis points and be the answer. It was interesting. You still saw the major financial institutions, Fidelity, Citadel, BlackRock, launching these services for institutional investors in the third quarter. Would you say that's just a lagged effect of the first half of the year and everything that was happening last year? Or do you sense that that momentum is real and that's just going to be a continuation of what we see for years and years to come where more and more of the incumbents adopt crypto and blockchain and everything around it? I think the momentum is real, but I would temper it in that Sometimes, specifically, crypto Twitter gets ahead of itself. Really? <laughs> the institutions are coming. The amount of people that were taking Credit Suisse's assets under management and mistaking that for assets on the balance sheet, people are like, oh, they custody $5 trillion. That's all going to come into crypto. I think I am less excited than maybe the average person pounding the table on the institutions. But I speak to the institutions. In those conversations, it's very serious. It's very real. I think that. It's really always been a regulatory risk standpoint thing that Coinbase and FTX are have this regulatory arbitrage in the sense that they're willing. What's the commonality between SBF, Brian Armstrong, and Barry is they are lobbying and paying lawyers, leading the charge with trying to get this regulated because their lives depend on it. The major other financial institutions are not stupid, though. If one or all three somehow figure out that this happens and you have 100 million customers that want access and you've got nothing, 
because you've just been waiting. You can't just sit around and wait forever. And so I don't think they're like late movers. I think they're walking slowly behind the crypto native firms, which is the strategy I would do too. Like if you run ahead of this, you could blow up an existing core franchise and that's dangerous. But if you just wait and do nothing, you're going to be caught flat-footed. I mean, they all saw Coinbase and FTX when it was little. They knew the size of these firms. They all probably been bought for, in hindsight, if you could have taken down Coinbase for $100 million or like whatever it was back in the day, like clearly you would have. And I think that the concern I would have if I was at a TradeFi firm, which I've said before, is like, what's going to happen first? Is TradeFi going to figure out how to custody, trade, and broker crypto? Or is crypto going to figure out how to custody, execute, and broker traditional assets. The way, especially with FTX background, the way it's going with adding DXY and Tesla, it does feel it's going the other way. And then when you think about the other large trend of the younger generation, the boomers inheritance, everyone used to think, oh, you'd wake up and your parents use Merrill Lynch or Bank of America or Schwab. And so like, that's what you're going to use. And then Robinhood showed up and you're like, was that really what it's going to be? And that wasn't it. But it sort of rhymed with it where like, it's possible in the future, FTX is a household name. My kids are like, oh, my 401k is at FTX. That might sound crazy right now. And my people, I think I squinted and saw the Oasis again, but I think it's very possible that those worlds are going to meet, like they're not going to stay separate forever. Yeah, there's a clear convergence. And I think there's no other takeaway for the crypto market than a positive takeaway to see the incumbents coming in. It's just, I think, further proof of concept. But your point on FTX is really interesting because my takeaway, again, from the cheap seats is that they've been doing something right and they're on the offensive and I'm sure they've taken some hits, but they're playing to win. And as they roll out more and more without the same type of regulatory constructs that muddies how fast you can move and what you can do, if someone's going to have a shot, certainly seems like them. So that's a super interesting thing to monitor. As it relates to crypto Twitter, I keep my own proprietary index of trolls. And it seemed like this past quarter, the growth equity trolls were out much more than the crypto trolls. It almost seemed like it was just a little bit quieter. I actually attribute that a lot to fewer people talking about crypto. There was less willingness to speak and it's natural with the times, but You've stayed in there, stayed strong. You never had laser eyes, but if you did, you would have kept them on. What's your pulse of the social stigma? Because I think everybody always says, oh, I don't care what other people think. But then when you have these markets, people do care what other people think and you see it very quickly. So what's your sense in terms of what the atmosphere is like, who's still there, whether it matters that you've lost maybe some of the excitement and the extremeness that was associated with certain personalities? What does it feel like? You're definitely spot on. The noise level went down. The quick answer is I absolutely love it. I'm happy that it's quieter. It's always scary to try to back anything new that you can't fully explain where you're going. This is kind of that like squinting towards the future thing. When people want hard and fast answers of why does this look like this or why is it look like that? This is where I believe there's this range that we've kind of talked about before where on one side, you have pessimism. On the other side, you have optimism. And then there's skeptical and cynical of people who are like, okay. And on the left side, the pessimistic side, if you can envision like a spectrum, you've closed-minded. I'm not listening to any new information. I'm hyper-cynical. And that's a really good place to be. And if you're going to tell me which side, because the opposite side is naive and gullible, that anything anyone says you're going to do. 
when you over-optimistic, anyone that comes in front of you and you're going to be taken advantage of. So humans are worried about other predators. So it's normal that they're like, oh, this is that fight or flight response. Is there a lion in the bush? It's rattling. Let's just assume it is. Let's just assume it's not good for me. When you're trying to build something that doesn't exist, it's a very scary state you sit in of, is this going to happen or not? But I get a tremendous amount of energy and joy from being around the people that are willing to do this. Now, I was a credit investor. So I'm naturally wired to be a bit more skeptical than I am optimistic. So I try to tell people like I'm optimistic, skeptic. I do believe that the future will look different than the past. I do believe it will look better. I have this other access of conviction. And I struggle sometimes because I'm not the high conviction. Like, let me tell you something, Matt. Ethereum's going to change the world. You need to put all your assets, mortgage your house. This nonsense freaks me out and I feel uncomfortable. So in the bull market, I don't like associating with it because people are saying insane things, but there's still insane things that could happen. And what impacts the world? It's this constant thing of like really asking yourself, am I crazy or not? And when the noise goes away, people have their victory laps. So they dance on your grave. See, I told you that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Aren't you so stupid for trying something new? And they have fun and that hurts. And all I do is just write their name down in a book and just be like, can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of true. You're not going to stop me just because you're saying you're dancing on a grave. Because what you're going to do, and this is why I got into the first place, when the tech bubble burst, sitting on the outside, you really don't know the difference. In crypto, it was starting to become obvious to me who are the real players, who are the people that make sense, who are the people that are doing special things, and who do I want to associate with? And now that there's less people beating down those people's doors, there's more access to the best people because they're not going anywhere. So you knew they weren't going to go anywhere anyways, but now they're all in a much a different type of build mode where they're really focused on, for me, whether it's seeing people build custodians or brokers or institutional trading platforms, there's people doing stuff every day that I find really exciting. And then the outside looking in is just, it is what it is. Did anybody from that pool of people fall out? Not the people that I talked to. I talked to Dan at CMS. He's one of my closest friends. He's an OG crypto Twitter. And what he said is like, what ends up happening is people get like carted out on leverage. If you look at crypto Twitter, specifically the trading crypto Twitter, which is kind of what dominates crypto Twitter versus NFT Twitter or blockchain Twitter, they're kind of three things I monitor. On crypto trading Twitter, they're all like just survive because they play with leverage so often. When someone gets carted out, they might disappear because they like literally lost all their money and they're done. But for the most part, the ones that are like the ORG classes, they've made so much money. They're just trading with smaller dollars relative to their net worth. So they're all staying around. I think one thing that's happening, which isn't a bad thing, there's this account, Zach XPT. He's basically like an on-chain detective. He's just unbelievable at finding the YouTubers, Instagrammers, or on Twitter, people who promote stuff and then are misleading people that's what you want your regulator to do, like hardcore diligence and finding bad actors. Is he still positive on crypto as a whole? He's just more of like an on-chain detective. Think about if you're a fraudster or a scammer looking for a quick buck. What you need is up only selling digital pictures to people, promising the world, delivering nothing because valuations are out of control. So from SaaS products to Peloton to like whatever, Prices were exuberantly high and crypto was the risk asset on the curve. So if you're in for a quick buck and you're going to scam people, like that's the time to be in it. When NFT volumes are down 97%, it's not exactly the best scam to run. So you go back to whatever you normally do. I don't know, sell like cell phone plans that are fake or something. There's always going to be bad people looking to do bad things. And when the tide goes out, they leave. So that's a positive for me. The builders are there. That's good. And I don't have to deal with, to your point, the trolls coming after all people. Because I think the whole trolling thing, people have every right to like express their views or whatever. 
But I just don't like them attacking people. They're coming in every day trying to do their best. And then they're sucking energy away from people. And maybe it's the people that I respect trying to fight the trolls less, I guess. It takes them down a notch. Life's fucking hard. And if you're trying to build something that doesn't exist yet, it's really hard. The good actors that I don't want to see attacked, when they get attacked, that bothers me more. But I get it. I want the scammers and the fraudsters and the shillsters to be like knocked on their ass and kicked out of the industry. I shut down a few of my troll accounts. Just wasn't getting the same enjoyment with the uh, 97% drop in NFT volumes. I never had Lily's eyes, but I have had my Born Ape up. And I do think that Trevor Noah, I just saw that clip. That is factually incorrect. I haven't run the numbers yet. Maybe we'll do it for a tweet. But he was talking about who thought if you put $50,000 in an ape last year, all joking aside, that 50000 is probably the single best investment of any portfolio thing I've ever made has been an ape relative to other asset classes. I know it makes good media. Like who thought buying an ape would have made money? Trust me, I would have said the same thing, but actually it's probably the best performing asset. I think the assets that hold up, I mean, again, it's the third quarter in a year or two years from now, some of this stuff might have a different outcome. I'll be gone. But the early winners are the things that have held in the strongest. I think there's just so much to be learned from looking at those. And it plays out in other asset classes historically. Back to the NFTs, we had a friend of the pod, Gabe Layden on, launching his NFT, which seemed like one of the first real exciting building of the hype, major release, major skyrocket in terms of floor value. How would you describe the landscape of what's going on in that space? You're particularly close to it. And was that what Gabe did, free to own, the branding of that concept, a one-off? Or is there something more there in terms of the momentum that exists? I think it's still early. I don't own any of the NFTs. I do regret not buying them when I stumbled upon them. I would say it's early to say like this is going to survive and be the next thing. That being said, to answer your question, 100% is it different? Yes. Gabe came with a unbelievable energy and marketing campaign that the group I had community, but like kind of NFT land had never really seen before. I thought the branding of free to own was really smart, even though I don't totally understand it yet of like the full fleshed out vision. I think he's got enough people curious. He has all the necessary components of what people want to see. So again, trading digital monkeys, board apes, to me, is just a battleground to say like, what could you do? So okay, so you can create something, you can monetize, you can change it. I didn't think about token gating two years ago, or like four years ago, people are buying crypto punks. Nobody was thinking about token gating in real life stuff. The products have to come online and be tested by a core group of people to even understand what's possible. As people started playing, it became really clear through 21 that crypto gaming was going to be a really big thing into 22, but really into 23, based on talking aboard Elon and his experience as a game designer and understanding the life cycle of these things. So crypto gaming is a thing that almost most market participants are pretty excited about. They just don't know what form it's going to take. I think the Mitch Lasky interview I thought was awesome. I just put a tweet out about that. Like I'm not a gamer, but Mitch made me want to learn more about gaming, to learn more about life because of how well good games are designed. And I think he had a good thing of like, it's going to be used somehow, but it's not what you think. You're not going to take a Call of Duty gun and shoot someone in Fortnite. That's just the weird thing we have stuck in our heads right now. Overly simple example. Coming back to Gabe, you have this person who's this apparently, and I don't know him, but from Patrick, this iconic force in gaming coming over to the thing that people are most excited about. 
So it doesn't really matter what he did. I think his background, pedigree, and vision were enough to say like, okay, I should bet on that guy because he's coming in and attempting it. So it's early days to see, but from a taking over, huge impact. The price went up, obviously skyrocketed, but also attention and messaging has been excellent. His delivery, talking about smart contracting and how to do things differently for interoperability. So I think he's doing a lot for the space. But what's crazy to me is he does that. He takes all of the attention for a period of time. Then you have this thing, Renga, comes out of nowhere. And now Renga is like this thing that's got everyone's attention. It's not by Gabe. It's by a famous artist. And so what you can see is eventually all projects have to deliver something. Unless you want to say your artwork and you're buying my artwork because you love the artwork, you're really funding an idea that you think could be something different. And so I've been super impressed with the media control that Gabe has. Like His game in the space is very impressive. Yeah, he's an impressive force. In terms of some of the other developments, the movement to the Creative Commons license, Moonbirds did it. I think some other projects did it. Is that meaningful? Does it have a material impact in terms of NFTs as an asset class? So there's two things that happened in the quarter around licensing IP that I think are worth drilling into. One is the Moonbirds thing. The other was Alex Thorne's piece on true IP licensing and backed up by Richard Kim. There's a couple of threads by him between Alex and Jimmy Heath going back and forth about this. So Alex wrote a research paper in general. My take is it's super interesting on IP rights. But the way to do this is to have a mock lawsuit. You should do something and have IP, and then I should use it, and then you should sue me, and we should go to courts and argue it out. You really need some good court cases to see if it works and what precedent they pull on for this new form of intellectual property protection. I don't know how anyone knows exactly how it's going to play out until we have some proper court cases, which I look forward to. Or I look forward to the idea of I don't want to be involved in it. Like I'm just saying people should do it. It's a really interesting space. Once looked at a deal where Pele, the soccer player, sold his IP early on in his career. I think he got a terrible deal, but it's basically been passed around several times now. And it's this fascinating thing where you own this person's likeness, but there's all these different dynamics involved. And it just feels very, very difficult to prove out, even with something where there's contracts around it and all this, to just think about even licensing of music and all that, the legal fees associated with slapping the wrist of the bad actors is incredible and sometimes not worth it. So went on a tangent there. But I do think it's such a fascinating concept because everybody talks about it, even data in some way. What's the value of this data? What's the value of this IP? It's a mirage in some ways where there's something there, but putting a true value on it's pretty difficult. And then understanding what the legal ramifications are and what it truly protects is a whole nother thing. It's a super interesting point, which I think it's if you're not in the IP world and you haven't thought about buying a catalog or buying a company or selling your IP, it's a weird topic to touch on. The reason why it became an issue, this is kind of to my point, why it's an experimentation phase. Most people who buy and sell NFTs never collected art before. Most people who buy and sell NFTs had no concept of like, did I get the CCO license? I had no idea. I'll admit it. Like I had no idea. I didn't collect art before. I like opportunities and I like trading things and I like asset class formation. And what I saw holistically from the beginning was the potential for a new asset class. And I just don't think you see that that often. So it's worth staying around and being involved and digging as deep as we possibly can and not going away just because the prices are down because I think this could really work. I don't know how exactly, but I think it could. And so the IP is clearly a huge structural component of it. So I think it's foolish to assume that it's all not going to work. I think it's foolish to assume it's all perfect. The CCO thing, 
that Moonbird's did was the idea of everyone can use it. Don't worry if you want to take it. You don't have to ask you for permission. I don't have any rights to stop you from using my image, or at least that's how people kind of understand CCO. The problem with it, more than anything with all of this, is how it was communicated. So Kevin Rose, who runs Moonbirds, basically made a decision and then announced it. Now, I was curious because I do believe Kevin's a huge fan of Xcopy, the artist. Xcopy had announced he was doing this. And when Xcopy did it, I felt like he had every right to do it. He's the artist. He created all of that work and he's deciding. Now, I think, I don't know all of the art of who did Moonbirds. I know, I think Greppelin was involved in part of it, but there were probably multiple artists that were involved and Kevin oversees the project. So he had the right to do it. But I think this notion of I own this thing, whatever we want to call this, this token, this PFP, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But imagine you own something and you cared about it and you paid money for it and someone changed the rules. No matter what those rules are, people just hate that. It doesn't even matter because people are like, oh, what were you going to do? Was I going to start a fashion line? No. But when I bought it, I had one thing and then you changed it and I didn't have no control. Moving the goalposts. But the reason why these are great things to happen, like why is that good? Is because it brought in a question over, okay, okay, you bought this, but Kevin had an immense amount of authority. If you don't want that, the next time you do a project, you should know in the beginning who has the ability to make a change like that. So I think both of those riled people up to talk about it. And so I really enjoy the conversation and the discourse, but I don't think we're going to solve this for years. I definitely think the courts will decide how does online ownership, and this is something I forget which podcast they were talking about, but kind of the skepticism here of connecting on-chain ownership rights to off-chain and like how that happens. I believe we'll get to a place where there is a good connection there where that can happen for certain instruments, not for everything, but there are certain instruments where that will make total sense for and other instruments where it won't make any sense. When you look at the fourth quarter, you mentioned Bitcoin mining. You're very excited about it. What's driving that? I'm not excited. I'm interested to watch. So I think Bitcoin mining will be interesting to watch just because back to leverage and how stuff works. The Bitcoin miners, when Bitcoin was in a bull market and hash rate was increasing because the rewards, I don't know, six and a quarter Bitcoin you get per every block. But obviously, as the price of Bitcoin goes up, that's a bigger dollar amount. And so essentially, what you're modeling is we have this fixed capital cost against this potential earnings stream. And so based on the hash rate, like how many people are competing against each other, does this investment make sense? So if they put that in front of you back in the day, you might have financed that. Or I would have and said, all right, if this is your projection of the price of Bitcoin and this is your odds of getting rewards, I've got a cash flow stream. Anytime you got a fixed cash flow stream and you got fixed assets, someone's going to lend to it. So the lending to Bitcoin miners is interesting. And I think why it's a struggle is that as the price falls or stays low and people finance very expensive, specific equipment that can't be repurposed, that could be an issue. So it's the lending part of the Bitcoin mining that I think is a concern to keep an eye on of how does that get played out? Because obviously, lenders, you can extend and give people some breathing room. And if Bitcoin is back up at 50,000, the model kind of solves itself. But I can't imagine that when people are financing this expansion of mining rigs, that specialized equipment. Again, this gets another thing of like the POS, POW war. And it all depends. So much of this stuff in crypto is a Rorschach test. Some people look at this like, well, that's security, Eric, because a specific piece of equipment was purchased to do a specific thing. Other people are like, that's a bad investment. What the hell else can I do with that thing besides put in a pile somewhere and default on my loan? So I think that's interesting. I think the other point that's interesting for fourth quarter, I would say this is just maybe not just fourth quarter, but thematically, when you were asking me about talking to institutional parties, the trade five crypto thing where I spend all my time is this convergence thing. So like, I wasn't the first person to say this. 
crypto is like operating kind of in a parallel universe and TradeFi is operating in a parallel universe. And so when you hear about Fidelity Schwab and BlackRock or whatever making an exchange, when you hear about crypto offering Tesla stock, you're getting what I believe is the rhythm of what's going to happen is that I just don't fundamentally believe that for the rest of my life, these things are going to exist in parallel universes, that they're going to merge. And here's one real world example that I find fascinating. In institutional trading or how securities get traded, the SEC regulators and most market participants, but not all, are usually pushing for tighter settlement. So when I started in the bond business, a bond traditionally took three days to settle. So you told someone you were going to buy it, but you literally had three days to move everything and get there because it was so hard to connect. The problem is those three days you're exposed to counterparty and credit risk, stuff can get lost in the shuffle. It can lead to a mess because you're not sure. So you're constantly paying for redundant records, for back office, for middle office, everyone to keep that stuff. And people don't understand the belly of the beast and how complex it is just to understand what the hell do I hold every day. And so the traditional markets have been pushing for tighter settlements to reduce the cost and expense because that all gets borne by the retail investor. So if we're spending all this money, then fees are up, make all this stuff work. So the tighter the settlement, the lower the credit risk, the lower the counterparty risk, the lower the operational risk. Now, I think bonds are T plus two and they're trying to get to T plus one and like, oh, can you imagine if we can do T plus zero? Well, I can't imagine because in crypto, it's T plus zero. And the interesting thing that I'm seeing on the institutional crypto side, maybe I'm still far apart and it might take me years to get there, but the world's going to get there where people are talking about delayed settlement crypto as like an institutional function because maybe T plus zero is too fast and they want more time for a counterparty or credit management. Why would it be too fast? It would just be in the sense of evaluating that counterparty. The intermediary might want to step in to make both sides of the trade more comfortable that, that either side wants to do more analysis or somebody wants a chance to pull back for a fat finger. All the things that probably I'm guessing the institutions are asking for. What people don't understand is on an institutional trade, there's constantly fat fingers, broken trades, mediation. A trade isn't a trade isn't a trade. Again, I like the part of crypto because it cleans up a lot of that excess. I think it was Citigroup who like paid that high yield creditor by accident. And like they had to go to court because they're like, I'm keeping it. Revlon, yes. In crypto, that's how crypto works. Send it to me, it's mine. And the court, I think for a while, was kind of upholding, you're a big actor and you made a mistake. So I think that to me, it's just one, maybe it's a small example, but I found it really intriguing how TradeFi is trying to get to smaller settlements and crypto is trying to get to maybe a little bit more delayed settlement. And so you can see at least this is one glimpse of where I think you're going, where those parallel universes are colliding, where there are rails of crypto that make sense from a centralized ledger perspective. And then there's traditional finance things that make a lot of sense, how we lend on an uncollateralized manner, how we can structure products. Sometimes we do good things and sometimes we create the next credit crisis. But I can see those worlds colliding more. Sometimes you want to edit a tweet. Sometimes you want to edit a trade. Exactly. Having a little bit of extra time might make sense. That's a great place to close it up. The fourth quarter has already started. Hopefully, we make it unscathed with less of the volatility and a little bit more of the building. Fun time as always. Always have fun doing this. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 